0: Welcome to episode four of The Wolf Den. I'm Devin Olson, joined by L.P. Spaulding. We haven't, we haven't had an episode of The Wolf Den in a while. It's been about almost two weeks now. Been a little busy at school with exams and such, but, you know, all's normal in wolves Land. Since the last episode, we've only lost a shitload more, more games and fired our head coach. So, I guess just initially, what were your first reactions? I guess just to kind of preview the episode, we're basically just going to kind of go deep dive into... The decision to fire Ryan Saunders, what Chris Finch brings to the table, and you know, kind of the last four games or the first four games of Chris Finch's time as head coach. So just right off the bat, what were your initial thoughts when you saw right after the Wolves lose to Tom Thibodeau, old buddy Tibbs and the Knicks <laughs> fired Ryan Saunders? First reactions.
1: I mean, I've been calling for this for a little bit of time. You know, Ryan Saunders is a great guy. And it was a good story. And when we discussed this, I think we tended to disagree on a lot of things with Ryan Saunders, but the, uh, the one thing I think we can agree now, given the experiment is that it's not that he won't be a good coach. It's just that he hasn't been yet. You know, the future is still very bright for Ryan Saunders. He was one of the youngest coaches in the NBA, just to start with, he was with his organization with all the pressure from his dad running it. And, you know, I'm not here just to dump on Ryan Saunders. I obviously disagreed with some of the tactics he was using, but he was very proactive in how to fix this team. It just seemed like there's this fourth quarter energy that he brought that just could not get the team to close games. And I don't know anything else what to say except for that. So initially I was elated. Yeah. And I guess the disappointing thing for
0: me is, Everyone on this podcast knows how big of a Ryan Saunders fan I've been and like I've continued to support Saunders throughout this. And I still wish he would have gotten the the opportunity to coach a full healthy team. But I think the last straw is when cat came back and they were blowing all those fourth quarter leads. I think that was kind of the point where Glenn was like, okay, you know, Rosas, you can make a move if you want. Cause I think that's always been the factor in it. I don't think Rosas ever really wanted Ryan Saunders around as coach like you can, he can say that he made the Saunders higher at the beginning. And I think that was more of a continuity thing. It was a feel good story after Tibbs. He was a player's guy, you know, the vibes weren't right when Tom Thibodeau was in the building and Ryan Saunders kind of helped turn that around. But at the end of the day, Ryan or Gerson Rosas always wanted Chris Finch as his coach. So when Glenn Taylor signed off on the firing of Ryan Saunders, I think Rosas jumped at the opportunity, which is why I think it came so abruptly and, you know, Rosas didn't want to wait around and, you know, kind of give Glenn the opportunity to change his mind. But then again, I, I wish Ryan Saunders would have gotten the chance to coach the entire roster. But I mean, you can't lose all those leads in the fourth quarter like he had been doing. There's games kind of going back through the schedule a little bit. You know, the Knicks game, they had a lead in the fourth. They blew that game. The Raptors game, they blew that game. They were in it with the with the Pacers, the Lakers, another game against the Raptors there were so many close games that they couldn't get over the hump in the fourth quarter. And now to be fair, you know, the Timberwolves haven't really been close the last four games. So I guess Ryan Saunders for coach of the year in that
1: aspect, but. In a weird, in a weird way, I feel like the pandemic almost worked against Ryan Saunders. I agree. Because as opposed to, every, you know, you get a rash of injuries and you can use the crutch of, Oh, we've had bad luck with injuries. We haven't had the full team. And in a weird way, nobody has, you know, Michael Porter jr has missed multiple weeks. We just heard that Pascal Siakam and Nick nurse are going to be going on COVID pause for, you know, a few games here or there. And so it's like, you get to remove that crutch. And then what else do you really have to stand on? It's, It's the results. Right. And from what we saw this year, the results weren't necessarily backing him. But after my elation with Ryan Saunders being fired, I was mighty confused that we had like all these rumors popping up about we were going to hire a coach right away. And I took that as like an off season move. You know, I figured that either Vanterpool or somebody would be interim for the rest of the year. And we'd kind of steer the ship for the rest of the season. But when we actually hired Finch the next day, I was mighty confused. I knew it would draw a lot of unwanted attention to a franchise that already has a bad history in terms of front office decisions and questionable tactics, you know, anyways. And I really hope that Chris Finch works out because otherwise it's just kind of another joke to add to the end of the Timberwolves punchline. Well, and
0: this is kind of Gerson Rosa saying, you know, now all the, all the, all the looks are at Gerson Rosas and all the fires on Rosas, you know, from whatever, whatever happens from here on out, you got your coach that you wanted now. So now it's your roster, it's your coach. So, you know, the time's not necessarily ticking on Gerson Rosas because he just got here, what a year and a half, two years ago, but you know, he, you can blame, you can only blame one guy so many times, or you can only blame different people so many times before the blame starts to go on you. And That's kind of where the point we're at with Rosas is, okay, you can blame the injuries. You can blame the players. You can blame the incoming roster that you took over, but now you kind of turned over the roster a little bit. Okay. Well now you can blame the head coach. Well, now you fired the head coach. So now it's your guy. The Timberwolves aren't going to win a lot of games the rest of this year. I mean, Malik Beasley's already suspended. D'Angelo Russell's hurt. They just don't have a roster that's going to win a lot of games. So hopefully they can keep that pick. Then you go in, get Chris Finch, his own staff or whatever, whatever coaches around him that you feel best suit the entire roster. And then, and then you go for it next year, because it's the life as a Timberwolves fan. It's just depressing seeing all the change and all the turnover, because at the end of the day, it's like, that's the news we're talking about as Timberwolves fans constantly. We're not talking about playoff appearances. We're not talking about how the team's looking on the court. It's always the team's losing games okay, let's start talking about the lottery. Let's start talking about the draft. Oh, the team's losing games. We need to fire our head coach. We need a new president of basketball operations. It's just an, end. it's a never ending cycle that doesn't involve any winning. And it's just, I mean, it's tough to watch the team and it's, it's been tough to watch the team because what are they now? Seven and 27. And Ricky Rubio said it last night. It's even if they're in the back of their mind, they're trying to tank and do the trust the process thing over in Philly that a couple of the front office people were involved in. It's like the players don't like losing. I mean, losing culture is just not a good building block in my opinion. And you can say it's the best chance to build this roster because we need high-end talent and high-end talent comes from the top of the draft, but you made the D'Angelo Russell trade last year and there's a 60% chance you're not keeping your pick. So imagine you finish this season with say between 12 and 14 wins. You're the worst team in the NBA by far. And then that pick lands four to golden state. Then what did all that losing do this year? It, it didn't do anything and it didn't build culture. It didn't do nothing. You fired their head coach in the middle of the season. You didn't get a pick from it. And it's just a never ending cycle as a Wolves fan. And it's, it's kind of upsetting, but I guess moving away from, from Ryan Saunders, hopefully, I mean, I still think Ryan Saunders has a bright future, especially in the NBA, he'll probably go, you know, coach assistant, assistant coach somewhere, There's rumors about Miami with Spolce driving. I think that would be great for him, but Ryan Saunders is going to land on his feet. That's not going to be much of a problem, but moving on to Chris Finch, I know you've got a little bit of of background information before we kind of get into his style and what he might bring to the team. So what you got on that?
1: Yeah, because I mean, partly when the hire was first made, I was just confused at who this guy even is that we obviously heard that there was a connection with Rosas, but going into Chris Finch's history, He's a former D3 All-American playing in 1991-92 with a nice basketball background. And then he actually jumped overseas to play professionally, specifically in England and Belgium. And he stayed overseas, even in coaching for a long time. He coached overseas and ended in 2008 until he jumped over to work with the Rio Grande Vipers, uh, which is one of the D-League teams, still one of the G-League teams, I believe. Once there, he actually won coach of the year and won a title. With the Rio Grande Vipers and then he picked up an assistant coach job with Houston followed by Denver New Orleans and finally Toronto obviously the years with Houston are the ones that we remember most fondly because that's when him and Rosas were there together It's where their connections were made but a nice note is that with Denver New Orleans and Toronto it wasn't just that he was an assistant coach is that he was the associate head coach for all three of those teams And all that is a sign is that he's very highly regarded good basketball mind. And, you know, not that there's a huge amount of responsibility, you know, usually that's the coach that steps up. If the head coach gets tossed, but you know, in Denver specifically, he kind of referred to himself as an offensive coordinator. You know, he was the one responsible for those Denver teams and the growth of the players on offense and making sure they were building good habits, running good offense. So in terms of, You know what, you want out of a coach. This is a complete 180 from what Ryan Saunders was. You know, Ryan Saunders was a good culture guy with maybe not as strong of a background in terms of conceptual basketball, but somebody who knew how to control a locker room and win over players. Chris Finch is definitely more about X's and O's, and he's not afraid to tell you that. He wants to talk strategy, he wants to talk offensive philosophy. And I keep using the word offense because you can see the past three or four games. It's not necessarily the imprint that uh, he's going for, but you know, this is a, this is a coach who's going to have a plan, a cohesive plan that him and Rosas can work together to find the right talent to fit the pieces. And I can go into that in a little bit. So interesting history, non-traditional, but I definitely think that he has a strong resume to take this job. This is not somebody who is underqualified by any stretch for the position.
0: Yeah, and I think just to touch on some of that history a little more, obviously the time in Houston, like you said, is what we remember because of his connection to Rosas. And Finch was actually part of the the head coach search two years ago, if you want to call it a search when, you know, Saunders was involved and Vanderpool was involved. So he was actually interviewed for the head, head coach job already back then. And I think just to touch quick on this, because I know it was a big story last week when Vanderpool got passed over for the job is, you know, everyone came out and about the minority uh, like opportunities in the head coaching position. And then again, today you saw Lloyd Pierce get fired with the uh, Atlanta Hawks. But when you look at the process, I mean, yes, it is a problem in the NBA that there is not more minority coaches in prominent roles and more minority people in prominent roles in front office coaching, just all down the staff and things like that. But I don't think you can point your finger at Gerson Rosas and saying that. He's trying to get the best basketball mind, the best fit for this roster in the building possible. And that's what he was doing. He interviewed multiple minority candidates two years ago when he went through the process. His front office is one of the more diverse front office in the entire NBA. So I mean, I think that was a, a sticking point last week when when that was kind of a big story. And it became a story just because of the way that Son or not Saunders, Rosas went about the process of doing the firing and hiring, but at the end of the day, Rosas has always wanted Chris Finch coaching this team, and it just so happened that the stars aligned where Glenn finally said, okay, you can fire Ryan Saunders, and Toronto was willing to to let Coach, uh, coach Finch pursue a bigger role. So I think just in that way, everything aligned at the perfect time, which is why it was so abrupt and why people were so caught off guard with it. But
1: other yeah, than I that, would, go ahead. No, I would say, too, this is not something where you're – taking away an opportunity for my minority coach, just cause he was a minority coach. It's definitely more of a go get your man scenario. You know, Chris Finch didn't want to, or not, excuse me, Rosas didn't want to waste any time getting Finch in the building, getting used to the organization and kind of creating the culture that they want to create. And the other thing is when you're looking at David
0: Vanterpool, you can say he's qualified to be a head coach. And I think he'll get an opportunity eventually, but what has David Vanterpool done the last two years that has said, Okay, you deserve to be interim head coach. What he's supposed to be the defensive coordinator of one of the you know bottom half defensive teams in the entire NBA. And you can look at personnel and say, okay, well, the Wolves don't have great personnel to be have a high, high level defense. But I mean, they've seen David Banterpool like in front of their face for the last two seasons, and they didn't want him as the interim head coach. And Rosas said, Okay, I'm gonna go get my guy in Chris Finch. And for Rosas, this, this has got to work because otherwise it's, it's on him, but
1: kind of moving on. Ha- to- yeah. Go ahead. I say bottom half is being generous. Dev. You know, 17th <laughs> bottom- is bottom half. So you yeah. can live with that. We're living in bottom the twenties.
0: Half- <laughs> yeah. But kind of moving on to uh, Chris Finch and what he's going to bring to the team, I guess, what do you see? I know you watched a pretty extensive video about some of his offensive schemes and things like that, but just in terms of his style of play what do you think he'll kind of change or he always talked about or he's talked about in the early days of uninstalling Saunders's system and just letting the offense kind of be more free-flowing which I kind of thought was interesting because you know Saunders didn't seem to have a lot of things installed and it seemed already pretty free-flowing to me but what do you what do you see for Coach Finch's offense?
1: Well that's familiar language to say the least so you know, obviously, as we get further into the season, we'll see a lot more. But the style of offense is that uh, Coach Finch is most known for is corner offense. And it's exactly what it sounds like it's taking two wing players and driving them deep into the corners below the nail to allow for spacing for early offense drives, especially in transition. So if you're watching X's and O's basketball, every time the ball is brought up the court, you're going to see. The, the wings go deep into the corner just in case there's an early offense opportunity for a player to go get a layup. On top of that, there's going to be a plenty of rim runs. You know what they basically preach is if you're the big who didn't get the rebound, you better be sprinting up the floor and going rim to rim. You know, you better get into the paint, get yourself to the rim, and then you can work your way back up to the high post. Um, and truthfully, one of the biggest things that will be different, you know, I think that the quote, focuses on is that's not a concept-based offense, or excuse me, it's a concept-based offense versus a pattern offense. Pattern offenses are based on continuity. So basically figuring out, all right, we have four guys on the perimeter. You make a pass. How do we space the floor after this cut or this action to get back to four players on the perimeter? That's pattern-based offense. With concepts, it's not that there's any rules, it's just opportunities. So once the ball gets to a certain spot, You know, Coach Fitch doesn't want to be like, all right, use a dribble drive or get a pick and roll at this spot every single time. It's going to be more, you can do whatever you want based on where the ball is and gives you two to three options. The only hard and fast rule is that every action you want to have somebody going to the rim. So if you do make a pass, you can go set a screen, you can go pick away as long as there's getting pressure toward the rim. And one of the biggest focuses that might be a little bit different is that it talks about paint grabs. So paint grabs are basically just dribble drives or catching the ball anywhere in the paint and getting it out because of what you're trying to do is collapse defense and focus so you can get the ball back out to create space so those are some small things that he's working on in terms of what we'll be able to see and what you have seen is just the faster pace you know there's gonna be no walking the ball up with this wolves team not that there was that much before, but truthfully in transition, once a rebound is collected, they want to get up as quickly as possible and really, really have a strong emphasis on early offense. You know, he's not going to be shy about if a player like Malik Beasley, who likes to do this, grabs the ball at the wing and goes one on two and tries to take somebody on at the rim. Or if Ricky Rubio finds himself an advantageous spot and go to the middle of the floor and take a shot. Coach Finch believes that, Open shots are open shots and I can totally understand that in the NBA when you have 24 second shot clock who cares if you're getting the open shot at three seconds into the offense versus 23 seconds into the offense you want to just get open shots which will lead to better shooting percentages and better scoring opportunities so it is interesting from a a fan perspective to think about a team that actually is more focused on offense again considering our defensive woes but with the style of players that we have, I could totally see why we want to emphasize a lot of early transition scoring and a lot of rim runs with the bigs that we have. We do have an athletic group at the four, but not necessarily the biggest.
0: Yeah. And first and foremost, uh, a Ricky Rubio open shot is not considered an open shot. That's considered like a heavily contested, fading away mid-range two and 2K. That's that's going to be an air ball. That, that's what a Ricky Rubio open shot looks like.
1: Wow. Your boy is just getting decimated here. What happened to you? <laughs> hey, I,
0: I, I love Ricky Rubio. I, n- I never have said he can shoot. That's, that's never been a comment of mine, but I do love the the Spanish unicorn. But just kind of playing off a couple of points you said, in terms of the corner offense and kind of nailing the wings into the corner and you know creating space for different players around them, when I hear that and when I see that, it makes me think personnel. And the personnel still has to come together for those kind of things because Josh Okogie's not that guy, Jarrett Culver's not that guy, and those are two of our younger wings that are seeing a lot of playing time. So, you know, that comes into personnel. Anthony Edwards can be one of those guys where he, you know, and you've already seen it, him get down to the corner, and you saw it last night with Cat kind of on the elbow area and make a slick under, kind of underhand laser pass to Edwards in the corner who was spacing out. But when I hear corner offense. I like corner offense, but I also see a roster that needs work when it comes to that and filling those type of roles. And then the next thing, when you, when you talk about pace and kind of quick decision-making and never wanting to hold the ball, I guess, for one or two seconds, that just screams Anthony Edwards to me. How many times this season do you see Anthony Edwards catch the ball on the, the wing and just and kind of jab step three or four times and not really make up his mind and most of the time you see after the jab steps, he'll hit you with a just a three. It's jab step, jab step, jab step. Okay, I'm going to shoot. Or it's jab step and go. Where I saw Chris Finch, I think it was the Saturday night game. Edwards had one of those moments where he caught the ball in the corner, jab step two times, and then put up a three. And Finch was just livid after. He was not happy. He's you know, right up in Anthony Edwards' face and saying, catch the ball, rip, and go. Like it's got to be quick. It's got to be quick decision makings because you can preach fast pace and you can preach quick decision makings, but all it takes is one on the offense. If one person makes the ball stick, then all of a sudden your quick decision making is kind of ruined because once it gets to that person, the ball is going to stick, the ball stops moving. And you see San Antonio is. I mean, there's a lot of teams that are really good at it, but San Antonio comes to mind because they've been so good at it for so long where it's you know, they kind of have the one second rule where it's grab the ball, either make a dribble move or you're passing and you're cutting. And it's just different things like that where the idea of that offense is really great in my mind, but we still have some players that are going to need to work on that. And I think Anthony Edwards is one of the the biggest players in that regard.
1: But, especially D'Angelo Russell. I mean, that yep. is a player who plays with a slower mentality as well. And to emphasize what you were saying, one of the points that we'll probably hear in the off season more is Coach Finch talking about a 0.5 mentality, which is exactly what you said. It's playing fast, it's making a decision, it doesn't care what you do as long as you do it quickly because it allows the rest of your teammates to read you. And, you know, when I heard that initially, I kind of immediately thought of D'Angelo Russell, because that's probably one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy when he's on the floor is that as soon as he hits the floor, the ball is just stuck in his hands up the rail at the three point line for three to five seconds. And when he makes a pass, all of a sudden we're down to 14 seconds in a shot clock without really having gained anything positionally. So I'm hoping that a player like that could really benefit from this because D'Angelo Russell is a smart player and a very well thought out player, but he's just a little too lethargic with the ball in his hands right now. I mean, his whole career he's played with the ball at his fingertips and on a string and trying to set up dimes as opposed to just move the ball to get that hockey assist. So I'm hoping that with a a coach like Chris Finch, that we'll be able to break that because that would be taking away a huge concern of Russell. But I guess more importantly, in my opinion, is kind of how this offense affects Carl Anthony Towns. I really hope that this is going to emphasize Towns. He's really talked about emphasizing Towns, but has there been anything in the first few games you've seen a different, Devin, or not really? I mean, I think it's just... Like you said, it's more of a
0: focal point on Cat. He's getting the touches, kind of in the high painted area, and he's kind of just orchestrating the looks. You've seen Finch do it in the past when he was in Denver with Jokic, and Jokic basically controls that entire offense. They get him the ball, and you know people are cutting and people are just playing off of Jokic. There's off-ball screening going on, and they're trying whatever they can do to. If Jokic isn't going to take his guy in isolation and go post him up or take a shot or whatever. Jokic is still going to be the one creating the looks. And I think you've seen some of it with Cat already. I think the very first game with Finch, Cat had a career high 11 assists, I believe, against the Bucs. So you see some of those things coming into action already. And Cat is capable of doing those things. He just needs to be put in the right position. And that is one, one thing that bothered me about Saunders, especially the last you know five or six games or whatever it was when Cat when came back with Saunders is, there was times in the fourth quarter where Cat would not touch the ball for you know five minutes. And it's like, how can you go down the floor possession by possession and not have your best player touch the ball? It's just I mean, it's absurd. And Chris Finch is a smart enough offensive mind where that's not going to happen. You know, the smartest guys on the team or the best players are going to touch the ball and they're going to control the pace and they're going to dictate the game. And you've you've seen a little bit of it already. It's going to take some time getting Cat used to doing those things and kind of getting those different positions installed into the offense. Because like Finch said, right now it's more about uninstalling what Saunders' system was or what baseline it was rather than kind of installing his own thing right now. So I think as time goes, you'll see Cat kind of reap those rewards more and more. But I guess just right away, you can tell that Cat's going to be the focal point and there's not going to be those five-minute stretches when he's on the court where he's not touching the ball.
1: And I feel like the nice thing from what I've seen with Finch is that the way he likes to play offense and Cat's skill set line up almost perfectly. You know, there's a lot of times with Saunders and previous coaches where they realize that Carlita Towns is actually pretty skilled with the ball in his hands. But all that ever turned into for the Wolves was isolation play. And that's not the strong suit of Cat. You know, Cat's not an explosive athlete by any stretch. He's very skilled, but if you get him set at the top of the key going one on one with his man, I think you're going to get a lot of just long, lanky floaters or, you know, moving too fast to the rim or a step back three. Whereas in Finch's offense, he's going to be involved in way more screen and roll actions. And that is way more helpful to Cat's skill set. You know, he's skilled enough to catch the ball on the move at the high post and then finish at the rim that's a great benefit as opposed to just catching them all at the three point line and saying, cat, go get a bucket. You know, maybe if you need a shot with like 30 seconds left at the end of a quarter, sure. That's something you can go to, but that shouldn't be a reliable version of the offense. And the interesting difference will be the balance of what Finch ran in Houston with Rosas versus what you said. He ran in Denver with Jokic. I tend to lean that he, I agree and agree that he'll do more of what they did with Jokic and kind of enter the high post, but Denver still uses an absolute load of low post-ups for Jokic. You know, if they get late into a clock with six to seven seconds left, you'll just see Jokic dive onto the block and they'll give him the ball and let him create from there. And I really don't think you'll see that from Finch. You know, Cat has a pretty decent post-up game, but if he got three to five post-ups every game, like he has been getting, I would be absolutely shocked. I think that those low post-ups are going away in favor of high ball screen action with rim runners. You know, you look at Vanderbilt, as a perfect example of somebody who could kind of play that Clint Capella role. He's not going to shoot a mid-range jumper. His whole job is to screen and run at the rim to create pressure. And cat can also do that for this team. So I like the idea of getting the ball in Cat's hands in advantageous situations, not flipping it to him 16 feet, you know, where you know off the block with his back to the basket, but rather having him catch in the high post and control the offense. So, I'm excited for what this means for Cat and, you know, early returns are saying that he's actually been a little bit more efficient on the offensive end through this new system. I mean, it's four games. You would hope that something changed a little bit, but Uh, hopefully a more efficient cat leads to kind of a more winning version of this team because offense has never been the problem. But if you can clean up even some efficiency from a great player like cat, that's only going to help us.
0: Yeah. And going back to your point on Vanderbilt playing with cat, this again, kind of goes back to personnel around cat. It's what kind of guys can Rosas get to put around towns, to put the offense and put Finch in the best position to maximize, maximize Carl Anthony Towns' talent because Right now, Vanderbilt's playing so many minutes next to Cat, and there was a play—I don't remember which game it was—but I think it was two nights ago. So again, that Saturday night game, where Ricky Rubio kind of probed the defense, and he did one of his his drives kind of along the baseline, and Cat and Vanderbilt were both just sitting right at the rim. So Rubio tried to fit in a pass to whoever—I mean, I don't—you don't even know which one it was trying to go to—but you know, one of those players has to be spaced. So. I think the biggest need still on this team is a power forward. You know, the, whatever the ideal power forward next to Cat is, I think that's the biggest need because Jared Vanderbilt's not the ideal player archetype next to Cat. I think the ideal guy needs to be able to space the floor so Cat can, you know, when Cat's down low, that guy can be spaced out up high. And when Cat's up top, that guy still has some ability to finish around the rim and kind of do work there. And Jared Vanderbilt's not that guy. He doesn't space. He's a dunker spot offensive player. And when Cat's kind of working down low, Vanderbilt kind of gets in his way a little bit. And as much as we love Jane McDaniels, I don't think he's ready for that big of a role yet either. You know, he's shown kind of some inconsistencies stretching the floor. So that's probably through a trade. That's probably their biggest need this deadline offseason. Whenever Rosas tries to make the move, I still think there's a move coming for a power forward. And I mean, It's just about right now, it's about implementing Finch's system, getting Cat comfortable doing what he's going to be doing, hopefully getting D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley back so everyone can have a little continuity at the end of the season, get them some time on the court together. And then you go and see what that system looks like around those three guys. And then, you know, you can probably throw Edwards in there too. And then you kind of fill in the pieces around them and you get the ideal people to play in those lineups with them and you try a bunch of different combinations with those guys to see who can fit and see who belongs next year. But I think for the rest of the season, it's all about rotations, filter guys through, try a bunch of different stuff. You're not getting anywhere near the playing game. So, you know, winning doesn't necessarily matter all that much. So it's kind of more so get the guys in there and see what you have for next year, because right now it's, it's, it's a crap shoot and you're not, we're clearly not trying to win games. So you might as well not even sugarcoat it at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we find ourselves in a familiar position, you know, you're trying to figure out we're not even, are we halfway through the season? We're not even to the all-star break and we're already asking the question of what to look at for the rest of the season. But as fans, there is a few things that I do find interesting. I just want to start off by saying Finch doesn't even have his own staff yet. So I know if we keep losing, do you think they're going to bring. So, and here's,
0: here's the problem I have with Rosas is he preaches culture. He says all these things in the media, but then he goes and does something else because how much can you preach culture? And you, can you preach, it's a family here. And then you trade over half the roster last year at the deadline, you fire a coach mid season. So how much is it about culture? Is it just, you know, talking the talk where he just said, we love the coaches in place here. These are our guys. We're going to keep our guys. So do you think they're going to bring in a new coaching staff over the summer for Finch? Or do you think, you know, Prigioni and Vanderpool are kind of going to be, be here for the long run as well?
1: I would be shocked if they didn't just go full blank slate. I mean, I do think Rosas has a ton of respect for those guys and it was comfortable enough to bring in Finch to this group without there being too much turmoil. You know, Vanderpool himself hasn't said much about anything given the current situation, even though he was the one that might've been the wronged party and all of this. But I can't imagine that Finch isn't going to have a few pet people that he'll want to bring around, especially for the defensive side. You know, as much as this is a tryout for the players, this is a tryout for Vanderpool. You know, he had the confidence of Ryan Saunders to basically be the defensive coordinator for this team. And he didn't really have to worry about his position and under Finch. I, think you're going to take a good, hard look at what Vanderpool is teaching and what personnel work and don't work with this system. Because defensively, the Wolves have been a mess for however many years now. And it doesn't seem like a coach like Vanderpool has been able to fix that. So, you know, without saying it, you know, Rosas has to do the company line, right? He's going to make everybody comfortable just so that everybody in the locker room doesn't feel complete turmoil, you know, infighting within a coaching staff is absolutely toxic for a season. That's how you get players to not develop and how teams just go even further under than they are. So I think that Rosas is just running the company line until he's, until the end of the season where he can kind of make some decisions. That's a dangerous, that's a dangerous line to play.
0: And I mean, that'd be one of the tougher parts about that job too, because you're trying to keep everyone in the locker room happy and you're trying to kind of keep them getting along. All right. But then when you say those things and then say you fire all of them in the summer, it's like, everyone's kind of thinking, well, you know, what does your word to the media or your word initially even mean when you're going and your actions aren't, aren't lining up with what you're saying. So, and I mean, I'm not saying everyone in the NBA does it, but that's just, it's a tricky line to kind of walk in my opinion. It's, it's interesting to follow, but in terms of the rest of the season kind of playing out, I don't even know how many games are left. I don't really want to know. It's it's more than half yet. So actually, no, it's not. How many games are there being played this year? Sixty six. Sixteen change. Yeah. So we're about halfway through the season. So we got a half halfway left. So the goal is to go twenty seven and seven, finish five around five hundred. We'll be a 10 seed. Go to the NBA championship and profit, right? Is that is that a realistic for the rest of the year?
1: I mean, it's as good as planned as any, Um, but in case that doesn't happen, I guess what I'm more interested in is kind of the role Anthony Edwards gets to play the rest of the year. There will hopefully be a stretch of time where not every single player that is supposed to be a building block for this team is hurt for an extended period of time or suspended. I'm looking forward to the future where maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to see the Russell, Malik Beasley, and Carl Anthony Towns on the floor at the same time, and I'm very interested to see what happens with Edwards because in the corner offense, I totally agree that he can be a corner piece, but when I vision those players under Finch's system, you think of more of the P.J. Tucker types or our boy, uh, oh, my gosh, I already forgot his name, Green. I mean – Jeff Green?
0: How could you forget
1: Jeff Green's name? Because he's a very – He's a very forgettable player that I totally (laughs) forgot about his name. I almost called him Josh green, but you know, those are the types of players you like to have in the corner. McDaniels fills that role. And to your point, a does not, Culver does not just players who will shoot the ball and play defense for you. And Edwards has,
0: Here's a quick question before you continue. If so, say D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, and Carl Anthony Towns, say that is set in stone. That's your offense. That's who you want to build this offense around. Anthony Edwards still kind of needs the ball in his hands to do some of the things that he does best. So what does he kind of become? Is he a six man? Is he a trade chip to maybe go get some kind of, you know, stretch four or like, what is Anthony Edwards then?
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I see him as kind of a pseudo point guard, you know, truthfully out of the players you just named between D between Beasley and between cat. I trust Anthony Edwards with the ball more than any of them to kind of run the offense you know I would be very curious what D'Angelo Russell looks like off the ball is he have that skill set does he need to have the ball in his hands because he is a good shooter I mean nobody's ever going to say that Russell can't shoot the ball and blink Beasley does his best work off the ball he runs off screens well he's good at getting his feet set and firing up a shot but If you're talking about the ceiling for this team, this offense, having a strong player like Anthony Edwards who can get to the rim and create for teammates is almost more important than just having Russell hold the ball up top. I mean, we've talked about Russell before. If he doesn't get into the paint going forward, I don't know how he fits with Finch. And from what we've seen, Russell likes to get to the elbow or get to the block but he doesn't necessarily like to drive into the paint and take contact and finish or kick to other teammates. So I agree that I'm curious that Anthony Edwards needs the ball in his hands, but I say, let him have it at this point, let him grow in that role. You take him number one overall because of what he can do with the ball in his hands. Yes. He has some off ball talent as well, but you didn't draft Anthony Edwards to be a three and D guy. Not if you watched him last year, not if you're really doing your due diligence scouting, you're drafting Anthony Edwards because with the ball in his hands, he's able to jump, however many feet in the air, and dunk on that Winabi guy and do crazy things like that. I mean, that's why you took Anthony Edwards. So seeing those four and how they interact with each other is going to be hugely important to me and in a very good insight into, you know, what this team is going to do. I don't think Anthony Edwards is a trade chip type player at this point, but if Finch doesn't play him on the ball that's going to be a pretty good sign that I might be wrong about that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Anthony Edwards is the biggest bright spot, whatever you want to call it. He's, he's what I'm watching the rest of the season. See how he kind of continues to grow and develop. Hopefully he has some more games and it's kind of been funny because I think, you know, Finch has been frustrated with Anthony Edwards a couple of times these last, these last four games and you can just see it. There's a couple possessions where I'll watch Anthony Edwards do a couple of those jab steps and take the pull up three or, you know, not make the right decision and you just watch Finch on the bench and he's, you know, whatever, banging his foot on the ground and he's not trying to show it, but you know, he's, he's frustrated with some of the decisions Anthony Edwards makes and it's kind of on Finch and the rest of that staff to improve that and kind of get him and groom him into the role that he needs to be into with this team. So that's my biggest thing I'm watching. The other thing I'm going to watch the rest of the year is obviously just rotations and some of the young guys that we've kind of touched on in previous podcasts. I mean, one of the biggest things I've noticed in the first four games with Finch is the starters are playing a lot of minutes. Jaden McDaniels is not playing as many minutes as he was before. So in, in the last four games, when Saunders was the coach, McDaniels played 18, 37, 31, and 22 minutes. And he started, he started one of those games when he played 37. But in the first four games with Finch as the coach, McDaniels has played 22, 16, 15, and then just nine last night. And to me, We can be kind of searching for some of these different guys and searching the combination lineup combinations that work to see what Finch wants to roll. But these young guys on these cheap deals still need to be getting the minutes. You're not winning games. Get, get these guys, the minutes, see what they can develop into, see if you can build them some value as trade chips over the summer, or, you know, you're getting them experience on the court to be valuable bench pieces for next year. So play these guys, Nas, Nas Reed. There's no reason Nas Reed shouldn't be playing. You know, 20 minutes a night. If you have to play him some next to Cat, do it. Like, What are you losing at this point? You might as well try things. You might as well give these young guys the minutes. I think mean, Jake Lehman had a pretty solid game last night against the Suns, but Jake Lehman doesn't need to be playing 30 minutes a night. You know, Juancho, man, that, that Juancho contract is looking worse and worse by the day. This guy's not even seeing minutes at this point. We paid him $7 million for three years.
1: Whew. Oh, I need it, Dev. Let's, let's give Juancho some love. Come on. We got to get that boy on the floor. He's making me look bad.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like Juancho. He need he just needs minutes and he needs time, but man, that contract's not looking good right now, but those are the kind of guys, you know, I don't need to say anything else about Ed Davis. Everyone knows my thoughts on Ed Davis, but if he ever sees the floor, I mean, fire coach Finch on the spot, that should be the rule, but.
1: Anyway. Ed Davis is probably the second head on our Mount Rushmore of this podcast so far. <laughs> you got Jeff Green and Ed Davis taking a lot of ire from us at this point. Can you imagine the the uh,
0: super team they would make together? Jeff Green and Ed Davis? Well, oh, you could throw Bull Bull on there? Cole oh, no, Anthony? Not Man, yet. You'd have not one yet. hell of a squad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, is there anything else you're looking for kind of throughout the rest of the year? No, sir. All right. So we might as well get into some of the Twitter questions then. The trade deadline's coming up in a couple of weeks. There wasn't too many questions on trades. Maybe we'll do a trade deadline podcast where we kind of once it gets a little closer and we kind of see what kind of names are on the market and see what's what's out there, maybe we'll do a trade deadline, trade centric podcast where we I don't know, have some fun with the trade machine and whatnot. I mean, you know, Sasha Gupta is on the Wolf staff and he did he did build the trade machine. So we, we might as well we might as well put it to use. But the first question we had on Twitter is who... Okay, okay. I just said we weren't going to do trade questions, and now the first question is a trade question. But whatever, I don't make the rules. First question, who is the most tradable out of D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, and
1: Malik Beasley? What do you think out of those three? I would say Malik Beasley right now, given the type of player that he is. You know, It's invaluable to have a player who can play off the ball doesn't demand the ball but can knock down shots at a high clip and give you that scoring burst off the bench. You know, obviously this would be post suspension. I don't think anybody's going to want to eat any of that suspension, but the closer we get to the deadline, I do think that Beasley is the most appealing player, especially for other teams. I mean, people would take Anthony Edwards from us. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think that's realistic. And then nobody wants D'Angelo Russell's contract right now. So Beasley is the right mixture of good type of player for a contending team, nice comfortable contract, and it probably wouldn't take too much to give up for him. Obviously, the Wolves are looking for a partner for Cat, and you can get a nice player, but you know you don't have to give up a you know top ten pick or anything to get a Malik Beasley on your team. Probably a veteran that can eat up thirty minutes a game and pairs well with Cat would be all it takes, and maybe some you know pick com- pick compensation on top of that. Yeah. And I would say D'Angelo Russell is definitely at the bottom of that just because of the
0: contract, but I would probably lean Edwards just because he was just the number one overall pick and he's shown flashes throughout the year. So there's definitely teams that are, I'm sure as high or higher on him than the Timberwolves are. So whenever you're talking about a guy that young who has shown some flashes early in his career, you know, I think he, if the Wolves ever make that play for a, I don't even want to call it third star because we're not really sure what D'Angelo Russell is, but for another, you know, star level or star caliber player, it's going to be around Anthony Edwards. It's going to be around a bunch of first round picks. And I think that's the kind of guy that, you know, teams would want as a, you always hear of a typical package. Teams are looking for a, for a star is, you know, established veteran young stud on a controllable contract, and then a boatload of picks. And I mean, if you think about it, the Wolves got Malik Beasley, that's a pretty, pretty solid player on a $15 million contract, Anthony Edwards, pretty solid young guy. And we got, we got a boatload of picks. So if you think about it, we, if we keep our pick this year, we'll be in play if anyone comes available this summer, but yeah, Edwards and Beasley are both tradable. you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any difficulty trading either of those, but either of them, but uh, moving on to the next question, does it appear Anthony Edwards will soon be the leader of the team? Um, I think we're both going to kind of agree on this and, spell it out as k-a-t cat but anything you want to add on that
1: i mean edwards is a very unique and strong personality and he'll definitely have his voice in that locker room but cat's the leader of this franchise he says you know he wants to build a winning culture here in minnesota and i hope he means that because i would absolutely love to keep cat around in a minnesota uniform but no edwards isn't going to be the leader until cat's gone
0: yeah i agree i mean maybe eventually if 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 cat ends up walking out the door or we trade him or whatever, then maybe if Edwards molds into that, he's a great personality. Love every single interview he does, but yeah, not the leader of the team yet. And then final Twitter question before, um, I guess we can just call it Wolf depressing fact of the week at this point, but (laughs) (laughs) last Twitter question. Is there any reason to be optimistic as a Wolves fan? You you might as well go first.
1: He caught me on a bad couple of weeks, man, between gopher basketball, my <laughs> high school basketball team I'm coaching, and the Minnesota Timberwolves. I've become some of a basketball nihilist at this point. Life is pain. There's no reason for anything. Don't worry. But, once,
0: once your favorite coach, Ryan Saunders, gets hired to be the Gophers basketball coach, everything will be all better in the world.
1: Not, not to mention our intramural basketball team suffered its worst loss since we formed the team. It hurt me deep in my soul. We should have killed that team. Anyway, it's been a bad yeah, I, week.
0: But I can't relate to that. I wasn't there. The team was missing their best player, obviously.
1: Oh yeah, but we missed all of that negativity. Yes, there is optimism with the Wolves. Believe it or not, there is a base of good, young, cheap players that teams that make the playoffs. Tend to have we talked about it before with vander or not vanderbilt oh my gosh i almost <laughs> said vanderbilt what's happening to me uh there's mcdaniels and nas reed and jordan mclaughlin and lots of players who are good nba players on very cheap contracts and that's a good recipe for us to be very top heavy with our contracts and raise the talent level of this team and we just talked about how tradable edwards and beasley are there's a formula come this off season. And I hate talking about the off season all the time, but there's a formula where we can get a really nice piece and really fix that starting five and compete at that level. That's where we lose a lot of the minutes is honestly the starting five, the secondary unit has been fine for the wolves this year, given what type of players we have, but feels like our starting lineup is always missing a player or two, or just playing from behind on top of that. I know you'd bring the negative side of this, but we still have a chance at a top three pick. And this Mm -hmm. is a loaded draft. I mean, if we find a way to get lucky, which is not something Wolves fans are familiar with, I'm not saying the number one pick, but anywhere in the top three is an absolute win with this draft. There's great players top to bottom. So there's guards, there's forwards. There's a lot of franchise changing players in this draft. So I'm going to hold out hope until the lottery happens. And then I can be crushed, but until the lottery tells me that we out and get this pick this next year, I'm going to hold out hope.
0: Man, that home man. The lottery night is going to be
1: stressful. Tense. I think I might
0: have to go – I might have to just sit live on Twitter and people will just be able to watch
1: my reactions unfold because – man is that going to be stressful but i will there will not be less than six beers in my system by the time that that is announced there's no way i cannot handle that silver. not a oh, chance man. yeah if
0: our boy andrew wiggins ends up with that pick whew, rough night but in terms of optimism about the rest or i guess not the rest of the season just in general about the wolves i mean everything you mentioned i'll say yes yeah any team you're a part of any team you follow you're always going to find something to look forward to. But I do think the Wolves are in a good spot. It sounds weird. They suck this year. They're going to suck the rest of the year. They might lose their pick. And even if all of those things happen, losing the pick would would damper the mood this offseason. But we're in a good spot this offseason to make some things happen. If we end up with that top three pick, you're going to have pieces. You're going to have a top three pick. Anthony Edwards, Malik Beasley, Ricky Rubio's contract you're going to have pieces to flip if you want to go and get the personnel that you want. And I think the wolves, the wolves year has always been next year, but it's, I mean, at this point it's obviously not this year, but what I forgot what I was trying to say. I don't know. I was going on a tangent about something, but I forgot what I was trying to say. Moral of the story. Yes. There's reason to be optimistic. We got the young guys. They can even be flipped if you want. There are pieces on this team and there's going to be you know, guys that have the ability to be traded for whatever Rosas and Finch feel like meshes with Cat and D'Lo and Blake Beasley. And, you know, I mean, maybe D'Lo is not even part of that equation. Who knows? Whatever they think fits this roster best, they're going to have the ability to do it this summer. And especially if we have that top three pick, we're going to have some of the best assets in the entire NBA. It sounds weird but we're not, okay. I should say not some of the best assets, some of the most tradable assets that would theoretically be on the table. So hang in there. I'm sure at this time next year, everything will go smoothly this off season and we'll probably be 10 and 30 at this time next year. And we'll be talking about how it's ready to be optimistic for the next year. So it's a cycle as a Wolves fan, as you can remember from the beginning, but other than that, what, what do we got for the
1: Wolves fact of the week? And the Wolves fact of the week, and it does seem to tend to skew a little negative, but I didn't mean it this time. So for the Timberwolves, Wolves, they were formed in 1989 and Flip Saunders is the longest tenured coach in Wolves history at 10 seasons. a respectable number. The second longest stint is at three seasons. Rick Adelman got 230 games under his belt and your boy, Tom Thibodeau got 204 games under his belt before we let them go. So if history tells us anything, we're going to get at least a good year and a half to three years out of Chris Finch before we move on to something else. So at least that's, you know, I love it. I love it. And just side bonus, a bonus one for you, Dev. Oh, bonus question. Bonus question. How many coaches in Timberwolves history own a winning record in their tenure? Huh.
0: I'm trying to think of what Flip's record would have been because that's the only possible positive one because Rick Adelman didn't have one. Thibodeau had the one winnings. Did Thibodeau's wins outdraw the losses that year? No, it didn't. Man, I don't think Flip had one of the worst. I'm going to say zero.
1: The answer is one, Mr. Flip Flip Saunders. Okay. That's it. Do you have numbers what it was or no? I believe that his ten year when he was coaching for 10 years, his winning percentage was 54%. Okay. And then he took another stint in which he won, I think, 38% of his games, but it wasn't enough to counteract it. So he was barely above 500 after his two times with the Timberwolves. Yes. Well, perfect. See, we
0: have a great, long, rich history of great coaches and, and everything. The Timberwolves are great. We should stay in Minnesota. Glenn should not sell the team. Everything above. Thank you for listening to this overly joyful and upbeat podcast, the best Wolves podcast in the world. What else do we got to say? What other over overjoyed sayings do we have for Wolves fans so they keep watching the team?
1: Nothing, man. I just want to see. I just want to see Anthony Edwards. Let's watch the show. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, let's watch Anthony Edwards. Let's try to not focus on what Lamelo Ball is doing. Let's watch Ricky Rubio brick some more threes and. That's about it. Peace.